my optimism is 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 steeped in pessimism too. You know, like <laughs> yeah, I got to be I'm honest. Like, I'm like the opposite. I'm yeah. pessimism with like maybe a little. Yeah, I, I reach out to you for the optimism. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Welcome, fam. This is Courtney Russell Jr., and I'm here with my co-host, Emily Brocker. Welcome to Humanize. We are two Americans with totally different backgrounds and life experiences. We're coming together on this podcast to dive right at the heart of the three things that shut down tough conversations about race, culture, power, and ego. The stories you are about to hear are meant to humanize those deeply involved in social justice. Welcome to the work, y'all. Let's get it. What's going on, Humanized family? Another debrief episode, another time for you to, to witness our brilliance, another time for <laughs> us to highlight, <laughs> another time another time for us to highlight the amazing guests that um, were on the previous episode. And I am just so blessed. I just want to start off the episode by saying I feel really and truly blessed and honored to be in this position and to have this platform and to share my thoughts, right or wrong, and to hopefully just pushed the envelope of freedom. And so I just wanted to start this episode with just giving some gratitude for this great opportunity to have the platform that we have here on Humanize. How are you feeling, Emily? I mean, I feel the same way. Just so grateful to, like I've mentioned this on past episodes, like so grateful to be able to reach out to amazing people and invite them on the show and have these like intimate conversations. Like, it's kind of my dream. Like, I just, I'm like that kind of person that like, I'm like, okay, like, I forget it with the fluff. Like, I just really want to talk about things. And like, I don't think I realized that we were creating that when we started this. Like, I don't think, and I don't think I'd realized how much it was going to change me. Like, I, my thinking and, you know, talk about some of that today. Like, I just, yeah, uh, it's, it's so great. Yeah. And, um, just I didn't know what we were creating when we when we started back in uh, the pandemic, but I'm I'm glad I'm glad it happened. So we're here now, and let's so let let's get into this work, man. Let's talk about and debrief um, Courtney's amazing episode, Courtney Napier, and let's go from there. Yeah. So the last episode was with Courtney Napier, and we talked about why white supremacy or how white supremacy fucks us all such an important conversation that I don't think I've really focused enough personally on. So Courtney is a writer, journalist, gatherer, and anti-racism coach from North Carolina. So she's written for a whole slew of different national outlets like News One and The Appeal. She's also the founder of Black Oak Society, which is a collective of Black creatives in the greater Raleigh area. And so a lot of her work, she's a really interesting journey coming from a, a more conservative family and then just seeping herself in in reading and literature. I mean, like, look at the notes, <laughs> the episode notes. There's like a gazillion citations, which I love. I was chatting with her af- after the episode and I'm like, how do you remember these people's names? Like, it made me the worst academic because I could never remember people like authors' names and stuff. <laughs> So by the time we're releasing this episode, she would have already run this course, but she's running these courses, um, Know Better, Do Better, The Legacy of White 
allyship, I think. I'm going to say that wrong. What is it? No better do it. Yep, the legacy of white allyship. And she'll be running more of those, I'm sure, in the future. And it's just a little bit of a different slant that I'm used to hearing to anti-racism work, bringing in the ancestors. And that's something that we we had talked about before, you know, just looking at, you know, basically white people who really helped, you know, and um, yeah, it's nice to focus on the positive. She's a very positive person. <laughs> she, she is. She is. Um, I, I, I really appreciate the fact that we we brought some joy and, and some some gratitude for individuals that are white, just to bring balance to what we speak about. You know, a, a lot of times we may get trolled and say that you guys, in essence, are just bringing down white people or or blaming or blaming white folks. It's, it's not a blame game that we have here. So what she did was was awesome, you know. Um, and I just love the pushback. I love our um, our conversation and what we talked about. And, you know, you know, now thinking about it is that like one of the things that I feel like white supremacy culture has done is it, is it you know, it's cut us off from our history. Like, you know, I, I experience like I don't have much consciousness of of my ancestors and of what they did, you know, like I have some photos, where are they from? Like, it's all very vague. And I think that that was part of the you know, coming to America norm is like, you know, make something new, forget the past. And I see almost every other culture in the world much more interested in their ancestors, in their history. And so to even reconnect white people with the legacy of white allyship and ancestors is in itself anti-racist because it's going against white supremacy culture, which says, forget the past, you know, move on. Don't think about it, um, which is cool. Kind of a meta thing. <laughs> That's awesome. Because um, something that came for me is the thing about white supremacy and why it's it's such a very dangerous thing. It creates a us against them type system. You know, it creates a, a hierarchy. It creates a, a, a place, a stronghold and um, an oppressive construct. And so um, that's why it's always competitive. It's always, I got to do this. I got to take care of me. And I think a lot of times when the system was created, it was created as if the past didn't matter because we were creating a, a future. And so that's why when they brought individuals of color to create this new world, they said, you can't speak your language. We want to rip up your culture. We want to make sure that this is it. This is what you remember. And so that's why it's so dangerous and, and so, so, so bad. Families pulled apart. And exactly. Tribes pulled apart. and exactly. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so this, this, we're moving to a time like we spoke of when we were thinking about this debrief, where we want to come in to see what I saw or what I heard when we were um, listening. And when I listened to Courtney, you know, um, we, we both landed again on freedom, you know, and she said something that kind of still I think about a lot. She said, struggle is a part of life, but suffering is something that happens to someone, you know. And so basically she was saying that we all struggle, but we all don't suffer and we all don't have to suffer. And and that hit, that struck a chord with me because 
as people of color, all we know is suffering, the suffering of life, you know, um, the pain that is associated with just being, with living, where we would welcome a struggle. We would welcome a time when we can just fight hard for something. So when individuals say, hey, if you just pick yourself up for your, by your bootstraps, you'll be successful. That's a struggle. You know, that's something that, yes, we, we are resilient enough to know that we can make it through if we work hard to create a business, work hard at school, work hard to buy a home, work hard to have a child, to get health care. Like all of these things, yeah, we could work hard. But when you have to suffer, you're distracted by extraneous circumstances that are out of your control. It makes it exponentially more difficult to succeed, you know, and so that's why it, it, that is the first thing that so she talked about so many things. I can go on for three hours on this podcast talking about the things that she brought up, but that was the first thing that um, I want to know what you think about struggling um, juxtaposed to suffering. What do you think about that? Well, I feel like I've I've kind of given that thought more in the um, like the Buddhist context, like that. You know, in, in Buddhism, I'm not Buddhist, but I've spent a bunch of time in Tibet and India, Nepal, like in retreats and talking to monks and, and so forth. Brought up Buddhism on the episode as well. Like they're very in touch with the suffering of the human existence. You know, like I think that often it's like suffering is just part of it. And, and then, oh, sorry, struggle, right? struggle is part of it. And the suffering is what we lay upon it when we resist it. And we're like, this shouldn't be happening to me. Like this is, or, or we like layer the, like the thoughts, the, like the stories we give ourselves of like, you know, I'm not worthy. Uh, I'm not worthy of getting that job. That's why I didn't get that job. Not like, well, it sucks. Cause we all get rejected, you know? And, um, it's just part of the, the human condition. And, um, I don't know why we do that to ourselves. <laughs> I certainly do it. But yeah, I don't know. I, I was kind of curious by you both had a little bit of a different take on, you know, do people need to suffer or struggle to create creativity? I think it's a both and. It doesn't have to be an either or, you know, like um, I think that creativity can come out of spaciousness as well. Like having a lot of, time to like be in nature and let your mind wind down but it can also be driven out of you by circumstance which is kind of more of your experience or take on things yeah in my life now you know um the blessing of being in Estes Park is time to just slow down and think you know and 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 prepare something to take back to my community to create change, you know? And so I feel blessed in that aspect. However, I don't apologize or take for granted the blessing that poverty has been in my life, if, if that's making sense. Like, I think I would have been a totally different black man if I was um, raised in affluence. But again, you said it is both and, you know, um, if someone, has was raised in affluence and 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 raised with means to do whatever they wanted and they were a person of color that doesn't mean that they wouldn't be warriors as well you know um i think when it hits it just hits you know but i i also 
look at all of the change makers and the hi historical figures and people like that. And if you dig in the, into their past, it is a lot of them, the majority is birthed through pain, birthed through suffering. And few of them is birthed through struggle. You know what I'm saying? Like they saw an issue and it was like, you know, I have to like Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I would argue to say that was birthed through suffering. Like she saw that issue. You know what I mean? She was, it wasn't like she was living this easy type life and she was a white woman. Right. Right. She, she was turned down for like a hundred jobs. Yeah. Yeah. She, yeah. 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 You know, at Harvard during the time, I mean, it's like, I don't know if you saw that movie, but I know it was so much more than that. She probably like a woman at Harvard back then. Oh my gosh! I, I I haven't seen the movie. I what I've read was um, it's a shout out to a friend of mine, Courtney Martin, who I when I was talking to him after Floyd was murdered, he's a black guy that I went to high school with, and he was like, you know, just make sure you're teaching your kids about how amazing black culture is and teach them about Africa, teach them, you know, like not just the suffering, but like the, the beauty. And so he, he pointed me towards the book series for kids. He has little kids too. They're a little bit older than mine, the who is series. And so it's like, who is Martin Luther King? Who is Harriet Tubman? And so they're just little books that go the story of their lives. And so we also got who is Ruth Bader Ginsburg. So I'm mainly steeped in Ruth Bader Ginsburg through this kid's book that my daughter has had me read like four times. <laughs> so. Yeah. She, yeah, she's a legend, you know, and, and so when I see anyone, whether it's um, Steve Jobs, you know, you have Warren Buffett, all these people, it's not like they were enslaved or they were even suffering, you know what I mean? But it came from a thing where they had to push through certain obstacles, you know, um, to make it. And then when you have a person of color like an Oprah or uh, Mike Jordan or Kobe Bryant or, or individuals of color who have have made strides. I mean, you talk about Jay-Z, you talk about all these these men and women who really came historical figures and we speak about today, they came through suffering. And that and that's another layer because it's just a question. Do people of color have to suffer to become great? Can we struggle and still become great? You know, like, is there another layer, another thing we have to break through to get to where people who do, who don't have to experience life in that way have to get to to be to make history? I, I don't know. I'm not. I'm, it's, I'm yeah, not. it seems like uh, all of our culture is going to have to rearrange for us to know the answer. To yeah, question. exactly. You know, exactly. You know. And so and, and this all of this came up, you know, and just another thing that came up for me again, what I heard was like. The construct of safety that's created via white supremacy, um, the, the illusion of safety. So let's play a little clip of that here um, so you can hear what she had to say about this. But this whole idea of like this delusion, right? This like unhinged dream, as you're saying. And part of that is this idea of safety, right? That your white skin provides you with a... A, a bodily protection above that of other people. Just like race is a construct in the U.S., it was something used to 
to draw the stark difference between success and failure, between enslaved, the have and have nots, you know, um, the, this this concept of race. Those people over there are here for uh, for us uh, to make our lives easier. Um, we are the ones that, if you are lucky enough, you can be close to us. You can be like us, but you will never be us. You know that was something that was created. You know, and so safety again is is the same is along the same lines in my mind. You know, like what is safe, what is uncomfortable. Me, and you talk about that all the time, Emily. Like when I go outside, am I unsafe or uncomfortable? If I interacted negatively with a, a police officer, or if I go into a bank to try to to get a loan or to a to to hospital to try to get healthcare, what 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 is that safe or uncomfortable? You know, and so defining that is because of the construct of safety and what it's, it is today to live in the U.S. I don't know if safety is a construct. I feel like that's like, you know, we can be in situations that are unsafe and that are like, you know, literally unsafe. But I think the and I and I think that we're wired to be um, suspicious of difference. And, you know, like way back in the day. That was like a probably a good a good suspicion to have, right? Like when we lived in pretty isolated tribes, like you know, what I'm talking like millenniums ago. I mean, for some, obviously, it was more recent. And so when you encountered another tribe that looked different or spoke a different language, like life was different back then. But that's where our brains mostly evolved. And so, but here we are in a society that's completely you know, there's so much difference. There's so where we, we are blessed to live with so much difference around us. And yet we're working with like the outdated software that is still suspicious of difference and moving so fast that no one's slowing down enough to be like, Oh, I'm using, I need an update. You know, like I need to, I need to start interacting with my world differently. Cause that takes a, a consciousness to change, to change that. And so I don't know, you know, because I think we've redefined unsafe. Like if you if you give birth and a woman of color gives birth, those those two situations could be totally different and one could be unsafe. You know, like it's a it's yeah, I mean we I could talk about there's there's another layer. I mean, like I was scared giving birth. Yeah, there's but lots you of reasons that it was scary. Yeah, <laughs> scary, but, but unsafe. I, I didn't, but I knew I had systems around me that were built to protect me. Like I didn't have to question that. And if I were black, I would, you know, it, I would definitely question the healthcare and just the the amount the you know like will people listen when I say I'm in pain and yeah, and stories about that too. Yeah, I mean, it's like I'm reading a book, Medical Apartheid. You know, we were, people of color were literally withheld certain medications to see the progression. That is unsafe. Tests were were, were done on us because we were thought to have a higher pain to- um, tolerance. That is unsafe. You know, um, there's a Henrietta Lacks. She experienced something with her, um, I don't know if you know the story, of um, Henrietta Lacks and and the the ovaries have certain cells that are what we call omnipotent. 
so they can regenerate and they can they create life, you know? And so they were tested upon without her consent. You know, now her body because something that's the same. And, and people were making money off, literally off of her body, you know? And so that's what I'm saying. Like unsafe is, there are things, yeah. If you go outside and there's a pack of elk, it's unsafe to jump on the elk's back. That is, it, okay, I get it. But the construct that I'm speaking about has been created because of white supremacy, because of the systems that are in place. Right. It feels like it needs another word or phrase. It's, you know, like, uh, um, I don't know. Because I, <laughs> I would imagine that the people doing that work on, what was her name? Henrietta Lacks. Henrietta Lacks knew that it was unsafe. Like, they, there's a reason they're not doing that on everyone, right? Like, there was a reason that they they know that that was not a good idea. But the the rationale... It's for the better, it's, it's for the better good. It's for the better good. I don't know. I've been, I've been kind of like seeing, like, uh, like in this storm of like trying to understand concepts between our conversation with Courtney and actually our, our upcoming conversation that we'll release next week with Derry Matthew Barrage. And in both of the conversations, we're talking a lot about like, about whiteness and white supremacy. And yeah, I've been kind of, this is going to kind of take us away from this question of like how to define this. I think we should leave this like question for us to consider, like how to, how to define the increased danger that is associated with white supremacy for BIPOC bodies. Yeah, I, I agree. And see, that is amazing because when you have a child, you're uncomfortable. Like you go into delivery, Emily, you are uncomfortable as hell. You weren't saying, oh, this is such a great day. (laughs) You were, exactly. You were uncomfortable. But you weren't unsafe though. You know, like if you have, if a a woman has a, a child in jail, Handcuffed to a, a, a the, the the cell, uh, that's uncomfortable and damn near unsafe. Like you, you know, and so that, that's what I'm saying. There's, there is a difference, you know. DEI work, it's uncomfortable, very uncomfortable. But is it unsafe though? No, definitely. I mean that that's that, and that's where I feel like where the brain takes us wrong in a wrong place because brain reacts the same way to physical and emotional discomfort. Again, antiquated system here needing an update. <laughs> Maybe Elon Musk can, can you know throw us an update. But I feel like it's almost like three, yeah, it just needs because I would say that there were times that I felt unsafe when I was giving birth because of because of the particular birth that I had. Like my my first daughter got stuck at nine and a half centimeters and was, I was there for 12 hours in transition. And, you know, it was like, but I knew, you know, I hoped that if it got really bad that I could have a cesarean and like that also felt like it would come with risks. So there was a primal sense of like, it's not just uncomfortable. It was, you know, so there's that, but there, there is something else beyond that. Like, my ability to have confidence in my doctors is what we're talking about, right? Is like, 
that was never questioned. That was not at all a part of my experience at all, at all, at all. And that, yeah, what is that layer called, I think, is our, our question. Yeah, I mean, just like every system. Let's forget healthcare now. We've been talking about that. Let's talk about education. There's a school-to-prison pipeline, literally for kids, starting at like the age of second, second or third grade. And if and so they build prisons based on the performance of second and third graders. Okay, so if if a community like they sometimes can predict the population of certain jails given the population of second and, and the performance of second and third graders in certain communities, and so it becomes uh, is that's why you call the, the the school to prison pipeline. And so they make money. They prior they they privatized you know um, prisons you know and say okay cool couple years we were making a lot of money so now you have a mass incarceration you have all of these things that's feeding and funneling individuals for um, people to profit that is unsafe okay, so they're making they're making predictors on like yeah. how big of a it's a science. Prison. It's based science. on the okay. Yes. Uh-huh. If you look that up, you could look it up um, on Google "school to prison pipeline" and it it'll be a rabbit hole of information um, about things like that. You know, and um, and you talk about um, we we spoke earlier about separating families, and right now we're, Congress is going through a thing about voting rights. You know, why is that a debate? Why do we have to have um, bipartisan issues about democracy? You know, like, I don't understand, like, w- infrastructure, okay, I can see. You You feel like a bridge should be the only thing, or, but some people feel like daycare. Privatized. Or exactly. Government paid. Yeah. Exactly. We, those are, are philosophical we, differences. That's, and that's cool. And that can be debated. Yeah. Why are we debating about democracy, though? You know, like we've been invading countries all around the world to spread our model of democracy. (laughs) There we go. There we go. So when it comes home for us, it's a huge issue because if some people have the right to vote freely without gerrymandering, without um, feeling as though um, a government has more say into their lives than them, shit may change. And that's very that's 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 terrifying for some people. You know, and so it's, it's just like the freedom, democracy, white supremacy, systems that have been in place are under attack right now. Okay, so how would you, I'm curious, how would you define white supremacy? Oh, a system that was put in place to protect individuals that benefit from what our country should have looked like for its existence. In, in short, now, if you go through all of the things to do it, you, you're talking about every system. Um, you're talking about government. You're talking about healthcare. You're talking about education. You're talking about finance, entertainment, media, everything that is the foundation of capitalism, of U.S., was is under the umbrella of white supremacy to protect white people and keep white people safe. Now, does it, that doesn't make white people inherently, I have to keep saying that. It doesn't make white people inherently bad. It's just that a system was created to protect white people. You couldn't pick and choose whether you're going to be white or black. You couldn't check a box, Emily, and say, you know what? I want to be a black woman. 
I want to be a white woman. I want to be an Indian woman. You couldn't check that box. However, because you are a white woman, you a system was created to protect you. You know, and so if a system is created to protect you and you know the system is not created to protect every person, whether they look like you, I feel like it's your obligation now to create, to, 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 to stand tall and say, look, I have a certain amount of privilege. So now, and I don't think that it's, it, I think it's very unfair that because of the color of your skin, you don't receive the same privilege that I receive. Let's change that. That is where I think your obligation, it, it comes into play. But you're not a bad person because you're white. And I think that's a cop-out that white people do sometimes and say, I, or were you trying to say because I'm white, I'm a bad person? No, that's not a, that's not a bad thing. But because I'm able-bodied as a, as a male, as a man, and I see someone who's not able-bodied or who is a woman, I should step out there and say, you know what, let me help because I have, I have, even as a black man, I have certain privilege over other groups that can lend a helping hand to make a life easier, to make life more accessible for all. As simple as opening a door for a person with no arms. That is a privilege. You know, for me to have all of my limbs is a privilege. And so, like, I think that if I said, hey, am I a bad person because I have all my arms? No. Obviously, I can go back in my DNA and say, let me check the box to have two arms, two legs. I can run. I can do this. Nah, I'm, I, that was a blessing. But because you don't have that, I shouldn't look at you like, yeah, see, I thought you wanted equality. I see that. That's what I'm saying. Like, it's, it's, a, it's a thing. Get over it. It happened. Like, are, are we, aren't we, um, didn't we have a president with, with, with no arms? Why should I feel bad for you? That like, that, that's the kind of thing that like I hear about and I get frustrated. Like, yes, we had a black president. Um, so we post-racial now. Thank you. I appreciate that. You know? So I don't know. Yeah. I, oh my gosh. <laughs> Rarely do I get so overwhelmed by thoughts. <laughs> yeah. 500 in a million directions and it comes out as silence. Um, so <laughs> between the conversation that we had with Courtney last week, the conversation that we had with Derry, which everyone can listen to next week, and this article, White Supremacy Culture by Tema Kuhn that was passed on to me by my friend Aaron Shannon, who works for Invisible Paradigms, which is a great organization helping white people understand the, uh, what does she call it? The, 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 something that practices the unspoken practice. I don't remember what it was, of whiteness. And so this Tema Kuhn article that we'll link to in the notes, Tema Kuhn is a, a white woman, a Duke professor, um, or she's associated with Duke. And she wrote this article originally in 1999 and has updated it, I think in the last year. And it really breaks down these pieces of white supremacy culture. And one of them, like, let me list a few, and she has more detail. Perfectionism, sense of urgency, defensiveness, quantity over quality, only one right way, paternalism, either or thinking, power hoarding, fear of open conflict, individualism, I am the only one. Progress is bigger, more, 
the right to comfort, objectivity. There's a lot of them. I think that's the full list, but she has a lot more detail under each one. And this perfectionism, it really vilifies the idea of making mistakes and um, and getting things wrong. And it's interesting the way that perf- you know perfectionism holds white supremacy in place through the defensiveness that comes up for white people. Again, this brilliant system that loops upon itself because what I'm trying, what I'm coming to understand is like, and correct me if I'm wrong here, like white supremacy culture could be used interchangeably with the culture of oppression. How do you systematically oppress, right? But we're not calling it the culture of oppression because this culture of oppression in its particular form with these cultural characteristics that Tema Akun has pointed out is used historically last 500 years by white people. So we have to call it the white supremacy or the white system of oppression. And it's not just any system of oppression. It's the system that's created to put the white race as the superior race, right? So that's like white supremacy culture. And because you have white supremacy culture, you then have privileges, white privileges that are afforded to the people that are benefiting from the system. 100%, yes. So I don't know why this is like one of those moments of like... (laughs) Now that I kind of like see this, I'm like, God, am I saying something that everyone knows? I don't think I really grasped before. <laughs> because I'm white, I see I see so many different parts of my, my culture, right? And I think that we throw around whiteness and white supremacy culture as two conflated terms, which, you know, might be the most helpful way to talk about these terms. But I'm trying to identify, you know, what is what is my identity of a white person beyond white supremacy culture? Is there anything? Is there anything there? Or is that remnants of Anglo-American culture? You know, like the way that we get married, the way that I conceptualize what a funeral rite is, or is that Christian culture? Like, I, I'm an anthropologist, so I'm always trying to understand, like, which of course is ultimately impossible to separate pieces of culture. But it's this article is so extremely helpful for identifying something that is so normalized for me that when I look at this list, there's that sense of like, but isn't that just everything? You know, isn't that just how we exist in this world? And and having that thought is deeply sad, you know, because it's like. This is how normalized white supremacy is. It is hard for me to imagine a world where where perfectionism wasn't the norm, where either or thinking wasn't the norm. Wow. You said so much. Um, the thing about it is Britain came here to America and met people that had a culture, you know? And so they came and tried to erase a culture that was existing here and what we call North America. And so if you're asking what is white culture, it's probably more consistent with UK, you know, um, and, and Britain and, and, and things like that, because they came here 
And other individuals came here too, but mainly the British came here and tried to impose religion and all this thing and, and create a new world and um and do and things of that nature. And so uh, the culture was was based in a takeover. Right. And of course, ironically, as a friend of mine pointed out, they were people that were trying to escape oppression and then they came here and just recreated that model of oppression, but then put themselves at the top. Exactly. So when you talk about other other places like Ireland and and um and other um European places, they have a culture. Italy. Italy has a culture. You go over there, they 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 believe like this is my that big, you know, mobs were if you weren't Italian, you you couldn't be you couldn't sit at the table. You know, they were steeped in culture, you know? But if you're asking what is a white American culture, it is based on uh, a template of 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 savagery, you know, like of of the takeover of of let me come here and create something, steal something, kill for it, and and build upon something that already existed, you know. And so, the thing about perfectionism is like all of that was normalized by a group of individuals trying to create something. Like even the Ivy League schools were were created out of a desire to perpetuate the the lie that people were inferior, you know, because of the color of their skin, because they were closer to the sun. To, to the sun. Um, we had a little um, uh, inferior brains, um, smaller brains. We didn't have as much um, mental capacity to interpret, but the pain, the work. We, we were born and bred to take care of individuals that created this reality that we live here in North America, you know? And so they had the freedom to create and make mistakes. And so as people of color, a lot of times we don't even have the freedom to make a mistake because everything is always on the line. We are distracted by the fact that we have to live. We can't make a freedom of running a red light because that could be the last red light we run. If you look, if you look over at, at your daughter one time in the seat next to you, and you run a stop sign, please, like, all right, cool, don't do it again. Have a good day. You know, like if I look over at my son or daughter and say, "Hey, look, relax," and I run a stop sign, that could be the last stop sign I run. It could be. And again, I always have to say, police officers are not the issue. The fear that has been created by this perfectionist system is the issue. And so when people, when we're talking about systems of oppression, it's different than talking about the individuals that have to live under that regime. Police officers have to live and operate under the regime of white supremacy. Inherently, they're not bad people. Even the person that killed- They're, they're just used to those norms. They're right? used to a norm. Sorry. Exactly. Yeah. No, Even no, you're good. the person that killed who? That killed George Floyd, you know? People could say he's a horrible person while he, he was operating out of fear. I don't even have to know that person to know that inherently, possibly, he, I don't know him. He could be a good father, a good husband. But when he saw a black man who he thought was committing a crime, possibly, again, I'm speaking of speculation because I don't know this guy, I felt like he was operating out of fear because how... Are you going to have a gun on your hip, but have your knee on the neck of someone to take like that is a fearful act. 
But I, I do think that it's important to both acknowledge, and maybe this is disrupting white supremacy, right, to be, have the both and approach, which critical theory is really good about promoting both and, not either or. Derek Chauvin is both part of white supremacy culture seeped in it so much that it's so hard to see. I mean, I'm someone who has <laughs> been working on this stuff for a decade, and I'm just like finally starting to see this a little bit. And there's personal accountability, right? And personal accountability is what is probably going to hopefully, inshallah, spin us out of this a little bit. Like when we can say, because we have this, this system of oppression that we're working in, like, I feel like I'm like swimming in, right? Like this is the norms. This is how we do business. This is how we think of professionalism, which we'll talk to Derry about next week. Yes. And I have to take accountability within that, which we don't, we don't have many other like systems of culture where that takes place. We don't have like a model for. I mean, I, I don't know if you're a doctor and you do something, you're going to get sued. You know, and you may lose your license and you will be under investigation. Police officers up until recently kind of did some shit in impunity. Like they just did, did what they wanted to do, you know, and people think doctors have power. Police officers have power, you know, and they're so they're more protected than doctors. Yeah, 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 totally. Yeah. You know what uh-huh. I'm saying? So like accountability, 100 percent. I'm not saying he should not have got everything coming to him for taking the life of anyone. What I'm saying is that inherently doesn't make him an evil person because he went out there and was driven by fear to create a heinous act. That's what I'm saying. You know what I mean? I'm not, but yes, accountability, of course, because if he was a doctor and he left a scalpel and a woman after delivery, after a C-section, like he may lose his license for that. But you can go and shoot, you can go and shoot a guy and it takes four or five, six years to convict him of murder. Like it's, it's, it's amazing to me. Yeah. It's kind of like that impunity with a lack of accountability that will consistently hold white supremacy culture in place because there's no motivation to unlearn it because the whole system has your back. And this is like, it's such a fundamental problem of police as we know it, (laughs) you know? Yeah. 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 I mean, it's so much, you know, like I think this conversation with, with, um, with Courtney, was amazing. And if you guys can go back and listen again, like I said, she really broke down um, things in her course. Um, I think it's a phenomenal course. I think uh, she talked about the pain of of what we have to go through. However, it shouldn't be the only thing. Like there's happiness. You know, she spoke of a place of, of great, of, of not comfort, but optimism. She came from a great place of optimism. And that's something that like, I'm I'm optimist. However, I I, I my optimism is, is is steeped in pessimism too, you know. Like, <laughs> yeah, I got to be I'm honest. Like, I'm like the opposite. I'm yeah. pe- pessimism with like maybe a little. Yeah, I, I reach out to you for the optimism. <laughs> yeah, I'm very. I'm like, oh, this shit ain't gonna work, but it will. What if it doesn't work? But what if it does work? That's that's where but I live all the time. Yeah, exactly. Can I? Can I? We. I know we have to wrap up. I just want to play this one last clip from Courtney because I think it's super important. Um, 
So here's the clip. White supremacist delusion convinces white folks that life ought to be less hard for some and more hard for others. And that is not the natural way of life. Life is hard for everybody. None of us are guaranteed. And so we, you know, and so one thing I love about Blackness and Black culture is that, you know, that's an undeniable truth for us. And so I believe what we produce, what we create, who we are, you know, our our laughter, our music, our our words, our books, our, you know, the way we love is just so amplified because we're like actually living, you know? So when I heard her say this, I was immediately reminded of our interview with the wonderful Crystal Walker, who I think just in our audiogram, if you want to look back and find that, she said like the fundamental, you know, crux of her work and the fundamental misunderstanding in white supremacy is that we're operating from this like limited resources. And I I feel like these two ideas are, are just really, they're both pointing towards the same delusion that it has to be that happiness and, you know, not suffering is a limited resource and that um, we just have to see how, how much there is out there for everyone. <laughs> and I think it's, you know, I feel like I've experienced that at moments where like, it's so sad to say, but like, I remember going through a breakup and my roommate at the time was falling in love with his, you know, would-be wife. They got married. And and I remember thinking like his happiness took away from my possibility of happiness. Like, I don't know what that is, but this I feel like is the fundamental misunderstanding within this system is that we like we can all lift each other up and we can even if life is hard and life is hard it's not an easy thing but we can learn yeah i don't know no that's perfect um and that's actually a great way you you've you've led towards the ending as we wrap up because why supremacy fucks us all because it gives us the impression that only a few could be successful and to disrupt that, we should all work and sit around the table to make sure that we all can become free. You know, and that's how that I think in short, that's the way to disrupt white supremacy when everyone is free and not some people dictating the, the parameters of freedom. I think that's true freedom um, and uh, the true disruption and dismantling of white supremacy. Yeah. And that's why Courtney's work is so important because it it asks white people to check their positionality in this work. This is not something we're doing for someone else. This is everyone's liberation from a system of an oppressive system that oppresses the oppressor. (laughs) You know, like that is as messed up as it gets. Yeah. Oh, well, thank you for this conversation today. Man, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. You make it easy to work, man. What are we doing? Like, that's 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 amazing. Thank you so much. Yeah. Um, and everyone tune in next week um, as we look at whiteness and capitalism. <laughs> oh, there you are thinking about professionalism. I can't wait. Yeah. Thank, thank you so much, Courtney, for an amazing episode. Yes, you thank keep, you, Courtney. Yeah, and um, thank you, Emily, for just being with me here. Good day. Peace. Oh, 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 oh,
Thanks for joining us on this episode of Humanize. Please remember to like and subscribe to our podcast so you don't miss an episode. Join us on Instagram or Facebook to continue this conversation at The Humanize Podcast. Let us know if you want to learn more about the professional trainings we offer. And of course, tune in next time as we continue the work. Thank you and much love.